This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code LESSDUMB. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 23, in between us four. This is an in-between episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, which means no cookies, no experts, but you will get to hear a really cool story from the deep history of psychology back when, well, sometimes people did experiments that today, well, they would never, ever attempt. They never get away with. So um, I think you're going to enjoy it. And without much more delay, let's just go ahead and hear about the robber's cave experiment. In 1954, in eastern Oklahoma, two tribes of children nearly killed each other. The neighboring tribes were unaware of each other's existence. Separately, they lived among nature, played games, constructed shelters, prepared food. They knew peace. Each culture developed its own norms and rules of conduct. Each culture arrived at novel solutions to survival-critical problems. Each culture named the creeks and rocks and dangerous places, and those names were known to all. They helped each other and watched out for the well-being of the tribal members. Scientists stood by, watchful, scribbling notes and whispering. Much nodding and squinting took place as the tribes granted to anthropology and psychology, a wealth of data about how people build and maintain groups, how hierarchies are established and preserved. They wondered, the scientists, what would happen if these two groups were to meet? These two tribes consisted of 22 boys, ages 11 and 12, whom psychologist Muzavar Sharif had brought together at Oklahoma's Robbers Cave State Park. He and his team placed the two groups on separate buses and drove them to a Boy Scout camp inside the park, the sort with cabins and caves and thick wilderness. So the boys arrived separately, and at the park, the scientists put them into separate sides of the camp, about a half mile apart, and kept secret from each other the existence and the location of the other group. The boys didn't know each other beforehand, not within the groups or separately, and Sharif believed putting them into a new environment away from their familiar cultures would encourage them to create a new culture from scratch. He was right. But as those cultures formed, something sinister presented itself. One of the behaviors that pushed and shoved its way to the top of the boys' minds is also something you are fending off at this very moment. Something that is making your life harder than it ought to be. And we'll get to that in a minute. But first, let's, let's go back and explore one of the most telling and frightening experiments 
in the history of psychology. Sharif and his colleagues pretended to be staff members at the camp, similar to camp counselors, so they could record without interfering the natural human drive to form tribes. Right away, social hierarchies began to emerge in which the boys established leaders and followers and special roles for everyone in between. Norms spontaneously generated. For instance, when one boy hurt his foot but didn't tell anyone until bedtime, it became expected among the group that rattlers, that's what they called themselves, did not complain. From then on, members waited until the day's work was finished to reveal injuries. When a boy cried, the others ignored him until he got over it. Regulations and rituals sprouted just as quickly. For instance, the high-status members, the natural leaders in both groups, they came up with guidelines for saying grace during meals and correct rotations for that ritual. Within a few days, their initial arbitrary suggestions became the way things were done and no one had to be prompted or reprimanded. They made up games and settled on rules of play. They embarked on projects to clean up certain areas and establish chains of command. Slackers were punished, overachievers were praised, flags were created, signs erected. Soon, the two groups began to suspect they were not alone. They would find evidence of others. They found cups and other signs of civilization in places that they didn't remember visiting. This strengthened the resolve and encouraged the two groups to hold tighter to their new norms, values, rituals, and all the other elements of the shared culture. At the end of the first week, the Rattlers discovered the others on the camp's baseball diamond. From this point forward, both groups spent most of their time thinking about how to deal with their newfound adversaries. The group with no name, the one that was just discovered by the Rattlers, they asked a lot about the outsiders. The, when they were told the other group called itself the Rattlers, the nameless group's members elected a baseball captain and asked the camp staff if they could face off in a game with the enemy. They named their baseball team the Eagles after an animal that they thought ate snakes. Sharif and his colleagues had already planned on pitting the groups together against each other in competitive sports. They weren't just researching how groups formed, but also how they acted when in competition for resources. The fact that the boys were already itching to compete for dominance on the baseball field seemed to fall right in line with their research, so the scientists proceeded to stage two. The two tribes were overjoyed to learn that they would not only play baseball, but also compete in tug-of-war, touch football, treasure hunts, and other summer camp-themed rivalry. The scientists revealed a finite number of prizes. Winners would receive one of a handful of medals or knives. When the boys won the knives, some would kiss them before rushing to hide the weapons from the other group. Sharif noted the two groups spent a lot of time talking about how dumb and uncouth the other side was. They called them names and seemed preoccupied every night with defining the essence of their enemies. Sharif was fascinated by this display. The two groups needed the other side to be inferior once the competition for limited resources became a factor, so they began defining them as such. It strengthened their identity to assume that the identity of the enemy was a far cry from their own. Everything they learned about the other side became an example of how not to be, and any similarities tended to be ignored. The researchers collected data and discussed findings while planning the next series of activities. But the boys made other plans. The experiment was about to spiral out of control, and it started 
with the Eagles. One day, some of the Eagles discovered the Rattlers' flag standing unguarded on the baseball field. They discussed what to do and decided it should be ripped from the ground. Once they had it, they decided to burn it. They then put its scorched remains back in place and sang taps. Later, the Rattlers saw the atrocity and organized a raid in which they stole the Eagles' flag and burned it as payback. When the Eagles discovered the revenge burning, the leader issued a challenge, a face-off. The two leaders then met, prepared to fight each other in front of the two groups, but the scientists intervened. That night, the Rattlers dressed in war paint and raided the Eagles' cabins, turning over beds and tearing apart mosquito netting. The staff again intervened when the two groups started circling and gathering rocks. The next day, the Rattlers painted with insulting graffiti a pair of blue jeans stolen from the Eagles and paraded it in front of the enemy's camp. The Eagles waited until the Rattlers were eating and conducted a retaliatory raid and then ran back to their cabin to set up defenses. They filled socks with rocks and waited. The camp staff, once again, intervened and convinced the Rattlers not to counterattack. The raids continued and the interventions too. And eventually the Rattlers stole the Eagles' knives and their medals. The Eagles, determined to retrieve them, formed an organized war party with assigned roles and planned tactical maneuvers. The two groups finally fought in open combat, but the scientists broke up the fight, fearing the two tribes might murder someone. They eventually had to move the groups away from each other. You probably suspected this was where the story was headed. You know it's possible in the right conditions that people, even children, might revert to savages. You know about this instant coffee version of culture. You remember high school. You've worked in a cubicle farm. You've watched a a Stephen King movie. You know that people in new situations instinctively form groups. Those groups form their own language quirks and in-jokes and norms and values and so on. In this study, all they had to do was introduce competition for resources and summer camp became Lord of the Flies. What you may not have noticed, though, is how much of this behavior is gurgling right below the surface of your consciousness from day to day. You aren't sharpening spears, but at some level you are contemplating your place in society, contemplating your allegiances and your opponents. You see yourself as part of some groups and not others, and like those boys, you spend a lot of time defining outsiders. The way you see others is deeply affected by something psychologists call the illusion of asymmetric insight. In 2001, Emily Pronin and Lee Ross, along with Justin Kruger and Kenneth Savitsky, all scientists, conducted a series of experiments exploring why you see people in the way you do. In the first experiment, they had people fill out a questionnaire, asking them to think of their best friend, and then rate how well they believe that they knew him or her. They showed the subjects a series of photos of an iceberg submerged in varying levels of water and asked the people to circle the one that corresponded to how much of the essential nature they felt they could see of their friends. How much, they asked, of your friend's true self is visible and how much is hidden below the surface. 
They then had the subjects take a second questionnaire that turned the questions around, asking them to put themselves in the minds of their friends. How much of their own iceberg do they think their friends could see? And most people rated their insight into their best friend as keen, and they saw more of the iceberg floating above the waterline. In the other direction, they felt the insight their friends possessed of them was lacking. Most of their own self was submerged and invisible to their friends. You believe you see more of other people's icebergs than they see of yours. Meanwhile, they think the same thing about you. The same researchers also asked people to describe a time when they felt most like themselves. 78% of the subjects described something internal and unobservable, such as the feeling of seeing their child excel or the rush of applause after playing for an audience. When asked to describe their friends and relatives and come up with something that was most illustrative of their personalities, they described internal feelings only 28% of the time. Instead, they tended to describe actions Tom is most like Tom when he is telling a dirty joke, or Jill is most like Jill when she is rock climbing. You can't see internal states of others, so you generally don't use those states to describe their personalities. When they had subjects complete words with some letters missing, such as G-L, which could be goal or girl, and then asked how much the subjects believed those word completion tasks revealed about their true selves, most people said they revealed nothing. When the same people looked at other people's word completions, they said such things as, I get the feeling that whoever did this is pretty vain, but basically a nice guy. They also, and these are real descriptions, said things looking just at those words, like this person is a nature lover, or this person is a positive thinker, or this person needs more sleep. When the words were their own, nothing came out of that. That meant nothing to them. But when the words were from others, it pulled back a curtain. When Prada and Ross, Kruger, and Savitsky moved from individuals to groups, they found an even more troubling version of the illusion of asymmetric insight. They had subjects identify themselves as either liberals or conservatives, and in a separate run of the experiment, as either pro-abortion or anti-abortion. The groups filled out questionnaires about their own beliefs and how they interpreted the beliefs of their opposition, and then they rated how much insight their opponents possessed. The results showed liberals believed they knew more about conservatives than conservatives knew about liberals. The conservatives believed they knew more about liberals than liberals knew about conservatives. Both groups thought they knew more about their opponents than their opponents knew about themselves. And the same was true of pro-abortion and anti-abortion groups. See, the illusion of asymmetric insight makes it seem that you know everyone else far better than they know you. And not only that, you know them better than they know themselves. You believe the same thing about groups of which you are a member. As a whole, your group understands outsiders better than outsiders understand your group. And you understand their group better than its members know the group to which they belong. The researchers explained that this could be how you arrive at believing your thoughts and perceptions are true accurate, and correct. Therefore, if someone sees things differently from you or disagrees with you in some way, it is the result of a bias or an influence or a shortcoming. You often feel the other person must have been tainted in some way. Otherwise, he would see the world the way you do, the right way. The illusion of asymmetric insight, it clouds the way you see people with whom you disagree. You know, you you tend to see people that you agree with in shades of gray, but others as solid and defined 
in primary colors, lacking nuance or complexity. The two tribes of children in Oklahoma formed because groups are how human beings escaped the Serengeti and built pyramids and invented Laffy Taffy. All primates depend on groups to survive and thrive, and human groups thrive most of all. It's in your nature to form them. Sharif's experiment with the boys at Robbers Cave State Park showed how quickly and easily you do so, and how your innate drive to develop and observe norms and rituals will express itself, even in a cultural vacuum. Just as you don a self, a persona, and believe it to be thicker and harder to see through than those of your friends, family, and peers, you too believe that the groups to which you belong are more complex, more diverse, and more granular than are groups of which you could never imagine yourself a member. When you feel the warm comfort of belonging to a team, a tribe, a group, to a party, an ideology, a religion, or a nation, you instinctively turn others into members of outgroups, into outsiders. Just as soldiers come up with derogatory names for enemies, every culture and subculture has a collection of terms for outsiders so as to better see them as a single-minded collective. You are prone to forming and joining groups and then in believing that your group is more diverse than outside groups. And a peculiar side effect of this is because of the illusion of asymmetric insight in a political debate, you feel that the other side just doesn't get your point of view. And that if they could just only see things with your clarity, they would understand and fall naturally in line with what you believe. They must not understand because if they did, they wouldn't think the things they think. And by contrast, you believe you totally get their point of view and you reject it. You don't need to hear them elaborate on it because you already know it better than they do. So each side believes it understands the other side better then the other side understands both its opponents and itself. You pick a team. And like the boys at Robber's Cave, you spend a lot of time talking about how dumb and uncouth the other side is. You too can become preoccupied with defining the essence of your enemy, and you too need the other side to be inferior so that you can define it as such. You start to believe your persona is actually your identity, and the identity of your enemy is actually his persona. You're succumbing to the illusion of asymmetric insight, and as part of a flatter, more connected, and always-on world, you will be tasked with seeing through this illusion more and more often as you are presented with more opportunities than ever to confront and define those who you feel are not in your tribe. Your ancestors rarely made contact with people of opposing views, so your natural instinct is to assume anyone not in your group is wrong just because they're not in your group. Just a small amount of exposure to the opposition, especially if you are forced to cooperate with it, can allay those feelings. Because this is the best part of the Robber's Cave story. Back in the study, Sharif was able to reintegrate the boys by telling them that the water supply had been sabotaged by vandals. The two groups were able to come together and repair it as one. Later, he staged a problem with one of the camp trucks and was able to get the boys to work together to pull it with a rope until it started. They never fully joined into one group, but the hostilities eased enough for both groups to ride the same bus together back home. And many experts believe that had that study continued, and we just can't replicate that again in, in, in modern science, it's just too unethical, but had, had it continued, they might have dissolved back into one unit. So it seems like this in-group, out-group thinking this illusion of asymmetric insight, it can be overcome. But to do so, you need to face 
shared problems. You need to realize that you and the other side are in this together. And it seems possible when that happens, unification is, is inevitable. And now we take a break from our show for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code Less dumb. Now, Squarespace has introduced something new. It's called Squarespace Logo. So in addition to building your website, you can now build your own logo for that site, business card, shirt, whatever you want. Just go to squarespace.com slash logo and check out the info. Or you can go to the Squarespace blog and check it out. Squarespace is a service for making websites. So they're constantly improving that platform with new features, new designs, and even better support. They have beautiful designs for you to start with and all the style options you need to create a unique website for you or your business. Squarespace has more than 20 customizable templates for you to choose from, and Squarespace has won numerous design awards from prestigious institutions like FWA, The Webbies, and Forbes. It's incredibly easy to use, but if you want some help, Squarespace has an amazing support team that works 24 hours a day and 7 days a week in this place called the Care Bear Lair, where 70 employees work in New York City to solve all the problems and to help everyone make the best website they can. The customer support team has also won numerous awards, including a Gold Stevie Award. So this all starts at $8 a month. It includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year. And every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website. So your content will look great across every device, every time. Start with a trial today. No credit card required. Go ahead and start building your website. And when you do that, when you go to Squarespace, when you sign up, use the offer code LESSDUMB, L-E-S-S-D-U-M-B, and you'll get 10% off, and it will show your support for this podcast and will help keep this podcast going. We thank Squarespace for their support, and Squarespace is everything you need to create an exceptional website. And now we return to our program. So the robber's cave story from the beginning of the episode that came from a chapter in my second book. It was an excerpt from you are now last dumb and the book has more stuff in it than you just heard. But, uh, at the end of that uh, uh, chapter, I go and talk about this thing that is really neat. It's a, it's a story that was in the New York times, um, that pointed to some research by Stephen Sloman and Philip M. Fernbach. Uh, you can check it out. It's at, uh, it's still at the New York times. It's uh, the name of the, <laughs> I love it. The name of the headline is I'm right for, for some reason. And uh, you can check it out. It's newyorktimes.com. Why partisans can't explain their views. That'll, that'll get you to it if you Google for it. So uh, that's, what, that's right. I Google for things. Um, so here's what it says uh, to sum it up. Sci- uh, Steven Sloman's a psychologist and Phil Fernbach is a marketing expert. And they discovered that people who claim to understand complicated political topics like cap and trade or flat taxes, they tend to reveal their ignorance when asked to provide a detailed explanation without the aid of Google. So people on either side of an issue, they may believe that they know their opponent's positions when they're asked to um, break it down, but they soon learn that they only have a basic understanding of the topic being argued once uh, 
once they're not given the opportunity to look it up. And stranger still, once subjects in such studies recognize this, they reliably become more moderate in their beliefs. Uh, Writing the book that zealotry wanes, fanatical opposition is dampened, and the research suggests simply working to better explain your own opinion saps your fervor. Yet that same research shows the opposite effect when subjects are asked to justify their positions on a contentious issue. So, and as I, this is how I sum it up, justification strengthens a worldview, but exploration weakens it. So go check out that article at the New York Times. They, uh, they also go into detail about the illusion of explanatory depth, which is an idea developed, as they say, by the psychologist Frank Keel. In the New York Times, they explain it like this. We typically feel that we understand how complex systems work, even when our true understanding is superficial. And it's not until we are asked to explain how such a system works, whether it's involved in a trade deal with China or how a toilet flushes, that we realize how little we actually know. And that's um, related to something else called the illusion of knowledge. And we talked about that way earlier in an early episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast when we were asking things like... um, how does a bicycle work? And can you draw one? If, I, if you take out a piece of paper right now and you try to draw a bicycle, not like a really good looking drawing, just a simple diagram of a bicycle. Can you do it? Most people can't, even though we use bicycles every day, our whole lives. And supposedly we understand what we're doing, but really we just have a very surface level familiarity with the object, but not a real true deep understanding. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. The music beds were provided by Drew Garraway and Banjo Apocalypse. Thank you very much for letting us use that music over and over again. You guys are amazing. And um, the opening music, that is Caravan Palace. The song is Clash. We are a part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. Go to boingboing.net to check out more great podcasts and go to you are not so smart.com to find links to anything that we talk about merchandise books information articles videos it's all there follow me at david mccraney follow you are not so smart at not smart blog on twitter you can also go to our facebook page google plus pinterest oh my god we're everywhere thanks so much see you soon